turn to Genesis 15. I've got two announcements. One, uh, we're, we have our Sunday night gathering tonight from 5 to 7. If you're interested in that, we'd love to have you. We'll uh, worship, pray, I'll share a little bit. Um, we're probably going to do a little walk, a little prayer walk, and then we're going to eat. So if that sounds like something you'd like to do, 5 to 7 tonight. If you've got kids, we need you to sign up to make sure we've got child care for that. Also, uh, our regular children's volunteers, they serve the entire school year. They take the summer off. Y'all continue to bring your children, even during the summer. So we need somebody to watch them. And by somebody, I mean, take a guess. How many spots do we need every Sunday? Give me your number. It seems like that, doesn't it? 35 a week. Can you believe that? 35 slots every week for 12 weeks. That's what we need covered. Uh, birth all the way through fifth grade. Penny, our children's pastor, does a wonderful job making it as easy as possible for you to jump in. So we would love to have everybody sign up. If we all chip in, it won't be overwhelming for anyone. You can sign up on the website. You can sign up with Penny or Christina up the street. That's beginning June 1st. We need 35 volunteers each week. Uh, to take care of our children. So please find a week that you'll be here and uh, sign up for either the 9 or the 11 o'clock service. Genesis 15. So we've been looking at Abraham last couple of weeks. Abraham and his wife Sarah and their nephew Lot, they make this huge move from Ur, they go to Haran, and then from Haran they go to, to Canaan. Um, God calls Abraham and Sarah from Haran to Canaan. It's about a 450-something mile journey that they take, and when he gets to Canaan, God gives him this sevenfold promise. We found it in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He says, here's the four things I'm going to do to you or for you. I'm going to make you into a nation, so you're going to have a lot of kids, or you're going to have a number of descendants. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you, which is material wealth, and I'm going to give you a name. You're going to have influence, and then through you, you're going to be a blessing. People who bless you will be blessed. Curse you will be cursed, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. So Abraham makes this huge step, this massive move, and then God gives him this sevenfold promise and says, this is what I'm going to do uh, in you, and this is what I'm going to do through you. And then we've looked the past few weeks at three different episodes in Abraham's life. One, in Egypt, he, didn't necess- he, he lied, he didn't trust the Lord. Then we looked at two last week, two very concrete examples of him trusting God, and that theme of faith runs through Abraham. That's the theme of his story. And if you remember, if you were here last week, we said faith, it's not what you think and it's not what you feel. Faith is trust, it's reliance, it's confidence, it's, it's building your life on something. That's faith. The analogy we used was actually standing on the chair. That's the picture for us. It's not just saying, I believe the chair can hold me up or I think the chair can hold me up. It's actually standing on the chair. That is biblical faith. That's what Abraham had. And that's what God is looking for from us. So we'll dive into that a little more deeply today as we start in chapter 15. Let's read the first three verses, and then then we'll uh, look at the rest. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Abram and Abraham are the same guy. "Don't Don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So after this, if you remember last week, when we closed, there were these four kings, there were these five kings uh, who were defeated by these four kings. There were five kings in the land of Canaan, 
And they had aligned themselves. And there were four kings who ruled over them. And these five kings rebelled against the four. The four came and routed them. And in their routing of them, they took Lot, Abraham's nephew. They took him, made him a prisoner. Someone came and told Abraham, and so he rallied the troops. He had 318 men in his house. He aligned, he grabbed two other guys who also had house, households, and they routed these four kings, wiped them out. And then on the way back, the king of Sodom, which is where Lot lived, said, let me pay you for all that you've done. And Abraham said, no, I don't want it. I don't want it to ever be said that you made me rich. God said he would bless me. I don't need your help. And so that's what this, after this, that's after that, after that battle, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Don't be afraid, I'm your shield. So Abraham had just entered into a military battle with these other kings. He may be thinking they're going to counterattack, there's going to be reprisals. And so what God says is, don't worry about it, I've got you. And then he says, your reward uh, will be very great. So the, the picture for us there is what God is saying to Abraham, I'm going to take care of you. You took a step of faith in going to get Lot. I'm going to protect you. You took a step of faith in saying no to this wealth, and I'm going to bless you. That was one of his promises, was that he would make Abraham rich. We talked about that before. That was necessary for the establishment of this nation. He doesn't promise, promise to make us rich. He promised to make Abraham rich because it was necessary for the establishment of this nation. So Abraham, in two different ways, had trusted God, and then God comes back on the back end and says, I'm going to take care of you for doing that. What Abraham's response is, is it doesn't do me any good. You can give me as much as you want. I don't have anybody to pass it on to. Abraham left Haran at 75 years old. This is somewhere in 10 years, within 10 years of him leaving. So he's somewhere between 75 and 85. His wife Sarah is somewhere between 65 and 75. And he says, it's not happening for us. We don't have a child. And so whatever you give me, I'm going to wind up having to give to this other guy, Eleazar, who's a servant. And this is God's response in verse 4. The word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man, Eleazar, will not be your heir. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up to the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. God also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And then he lists all these tribes that are hard to pronounce. So, for us, here's what's going on. Abraham in 12.3, here's this sevenfold promise, I'm gonna, here's what I'm going to do in you and through you. And Abraham had seen traction on two of the four. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. We said that was wealth. He had it. Wealth is measured in men. Abraham had 318. It's measured in livestock. His 
his, his livestock holdings were so large, they had to split the land between him and Lot because there wasn't enough space for both of their uh, herds to graze. It's measured in gold, and he had that from Egypt. If you remember in chapter 12 or 13, no, 12, he had gotten Egypt. He'd gotten gold from when he left Egypt. So he'd done that. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to have influence. People are going to know you. Just happened. He just defeated the ruling kings. Everybody knows who Abraham is now. He also said, I'm going to give you descendants. Hasn't happened. I'm going to give you this land. Hasn't happened. So what God is doing is he's reassuring Abraham on, the two, on two of the four points of this promise that he hasn't seen any traction on. Abraham doesn't have descendants, and so what God says is, I'm going to give them to you. Now, God had spoken to Abraham about this previously, and it was significant enough and strong enough, real enough, tangible enough for Abraham that he picked up his family and he moved. God had spoken to him. I don't know what it looked like, if an angel appeared to him or if he had a dream or God just spoke to his heart, but it was a strong enough word from God that it motivated Abraham to move hundreds of miles away to a foreign country. So he had that. It wasn't like he was going on nothing. And God, when he got there, God had reiterated this promise. I'm going to give you offspring twice. But Abraham needed a little something more. He's like, I don't have an heir. And so God takes him outside. He gives him a visual aid, which is wonderful. Every night, Abraham could go out and be reminded of what God said to him. He didn't have to try to remember the dream. He didn't have to try to remember, recreate the circumstances when God spoke to him the first time. Every night, he could go outside and look up and be reminded, God said that my descendants are going to look like that. That's how many I'm going to have. And then for the land, he does the same thing. Just in case you're wondering, Abraham, about the land, Abraham doesn't bring it up. God does. Just in case you're wondering, I'm going to, I'm going to give you that as well. Abraham's looking at the land, and it's full of people, Amorites. That's kind of the, that's an umbrella term for all of those nations that I didn't read because their names are too hard to say. So the, all of those people fit under this general term Amorites, and they were full, Canaan was filled with them. They inhabited the land, and Abraham's going, how am I going to get it if it's already full? And what God says to him is, I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to lay it out for you. Here's what the next 400 years are going to look like for your family. Y'all are going to be taken to another country. You're going to be enslaved. Don't worry about that because I'm going to take care of the people who are enslaving you. Y'all are going to come out and you're going to be loaded. If you read Exodus, that's what happens. When the Israelites are leaving after that tenth plague, people are just giving them stuff, saying, get out of here as fast as you can. And they leave with all kinds of possessions from Egypt. They go from slaves to wealthy in a night. And so that happens for Abraham and his family. God says, that's what's going to happen And just to seal it for you, I want you to go, you're going to kill these animals, and we're going to have this ceremony, this covenant-making ceremony. It's an unforgettable experience for Abraham. When it comes to the children piece, he can go outside and look at the sky every night and be reassured and have that confirmed in his heart. This is what God said he would do. When it comes to the land, he has this unforgettable experience. He gets these animals, and he cuts them in half, and he lines them up, Then he falls into a deep sleep. It's the same word used of Adam when he falls into a deep sleep before God takes his rib to make Eve. And the presence of God, the fire pot and the torch represent God's presence. And God passes through the halves of these two animals, which ratifies the covenant. We don't know what it means. We just know that was the way covenants were ratified. Some people say that when you cut them in half and walk through them, you were saying... If I don't hold up my end of the deal, then let this happen to me. Let me be cut in half the way these animals are if I don't do what I say. And you'll notice God's the only one who passes through. Abraham doesn't walk through. What God is saying is, here's all the stuff I'm going to do for you. Here's all of, I'm going to fulfill that sevenfold promise to you. You don't have to do anything. 
I've got this. It's a unilateral covenant in that sense. It's a promise from God. He says, this is what I'm going to do. And Abraham could then pass that story on to his family. When they're enslaved, he could say, listen, I knew it. we knew it's going to happen. That's part of their family story that they pass down from generation to generation. We're going to be enslaved in a foreign land, and we're going to be treated terribly, but don't worry. At this point, in 400 years, God is going to rescue us. It gives them this touchstone as they have to wait for, again, 400 years for God to finally fulfill his word to their ancestor Abraham to make a nation of them and to give them land. To me, it's this beautiful picture of relationship. One of the things about Abraham, and we'll see it as we continue to look at his story, he's very reverent with the Lord. When God speaks to him, he does what the Lord says to the point of putting his son on an altar to kill him. He's, he obeys. So there's this fear in that sense of reverence with God. But there's not this fear of God in terms of being afraid of him. He goes at him multiple times. We'll see that uh, in chapter 19 when he's going back and forth with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. He understands what it means to be in a relationship with God. He understands his position before the Lord, what that means in terms of access to God, and what it means in terms of respect for God. And that's something that sometimes we lose. Some of us fall one way or the other. We're either so much on the God is up here and I'm going to respect him and we just keep our head down and there's no, there's no engagement. We function more as servants than we do as children. We don't recognize this picture of him as our father. We hear that, but we don't necessarily live with God as a father. And there are other of us who fall on the other side. We're overly familiar, like God's our buddy, and we just kind of keep him right here. And we don't recognize he's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. And he made everything just by speaking it. And there needs to be some respect there as well. And Abraham holds both of those things together beautifully. So my encouragement to you is to look at him as a model for the type of relationship God is looking for from us. Even though he's an Old Testament pre-Jesus figure, he's this picture to me of what relationship with God looks like. It's this, it's tension is not the right word. It's a, maybe it is. It's this tension between respecting God, fearing him in the biblical sense of reverence and awe, and, but not fearing him in the sense of being afraid of who he is, recognizing my role as a son and what he's looking for from me in terms of engagement. Now, I'm going to take a tangent, and it may not be a good one. So I may be answering a question that you're not asking, but just in case, let me speak a little bit about this idea of the sins of the Amorites. It has not yet, what does it say, reached its full measure. If you read the book of Joshua, the first 12 chapters are brutal. God just tells the Israelites to wipe out all of, the, all of those tribes that we saw in verse 21. Wipe them out, men, women, and children. For some people, they read that. It's a huge issue for them when it comes to God's character. If God is kind and loving, how can he wipe out ethnic cleansing? How can he do that to all of these people? That command in Joshua to take the land is rooted in what we read here in Genesis 15. There's this picture of the Amorites. Again, that's an umbrella term for all of the people living in Canaan, that they are sinning, and they will continue to sin for four more centuries. And at some point, enough is enough. And God uses the Israelites as a tool to judge them. God is the one judging them. He uses the Israelites as an instrument of that judgment. So when God wipes them out to put Israel in in their place in that land, what he's doing is judging the, the Amorites for this sin that's been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And you can read about them. They were not good people. They were wicked 
in just about every way, to the point of sacrificing their own children. That's, that was part of their religious ritual, which child sacrifice. It was ugly all the way through. And at some point, God says, enough is enough, and I've got to, we're starting over here. It's similar to what he did with the flood. Here's a couple of verses that maybe will give you some context. That first one in Joshua. So this is on the back end after they've taken Canaan. God is saying, I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you. I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you, and you took possession of the land. So that's God saying, I'm the actor. I'm the one doing this. I used you, but I'm the one who's ultimately calling the shots. And then Deuteronomy 9, again, speaks to the motivation. After the Lord your God has driven these Amorites out before you, don't say, the Lord brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. It's not... No, it's on the account of the wickedness of those nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. So this is on the front end before they take the land. It's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you see throughout the Old Testament, there's this, this is not uncommon for God to use natural means to judge nations. All judgment is supernatural because God is above nature, but he often uses natural means to do that. He uses it in Israel's life repeatedly. He does it with the Assyrians in 722. He does it with the Babylonians in 586. And you can see other examples in the Old Testament where God uses other nations, even pagan nations, to discipline or judge his people. And this is a case where he's using his people, Israel, to judge a pagan nation over hundreds of years of their sinfulness. If that still doesn't sit great with you, read Jonah. It's four chapters, super short. You get to read about belly of the whale, all of those things. It's a picture of what happens when God, when a nation repents. God sends Jonah to Nineveh to say, preach destruction to them because they're done, because they're so wicked. And the nation repents, and God called, he calls off the dogs. He says, all right, we're not. They repented, so the judgment that I had planned for them I'm not, is not going to be executed. I wonder if the Amorites had repented at some way along the way. At some point along the way, God, I don't think, would have put Abraham there. He would have taken Abraham's descendants and he'd have put them somewhere else. He wouldn't have wiped them out if it wasn't this just judgment. So again, I don't know if that's a question in your mind or if you've talked to people who have that question. If, if you do, great. If not, you can't get those five minutes back. So I'm sorry. What does this mean for us? What's it look like? Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him credited it to him as righteousness. So there's 31,000, a little over that, verses in the Bible. This is probably the second most important one to me. Number one is John 3.16. That tells you just about everything you need to know. God so loved the world, that's his, his disposition towards us. It's one of love. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's the plan right there. Genesis 5.15.6 is probably number two on the list. Because it says, here's what God is looking for from us. From the beginning, from way back at the beginning, Abraham believed, he trusted in, he relied on, he had confidence in God. I think Romans 4.21 says about Abraham, he, he didn't waver in believing that God would accomplish his promise. He was fully persuaded, I think is what it says in Romans 4.21, that God would accomplish what he said he would through him. That's what it means. He believed, he trusted, had faith, relied on, stood on, wrapped his life around the things God had said to him. And because of that, God credited or counted on Abraham's behalf 
counted that faith as righteousness, as the standard to which God was holding him. So in this relationship, God says, here's what I expect of you. Righteousness can be seen as the relational expectations in a relationship or a standard of behavior. This holds both of those things. So what God is saying to Abraham, this is what I'm looking for for from you. In Abraham's faith, God said, that's it. I'm counting your faith as the behavior that I'm looking for. I'm giving you a credit. Your faith, your trust in me, that goes in the yes column for you in terms of what I'm looking for in a relationship. It's a massively important verse for us. If you've been in church for probably any length of time, you've heard all of this terminology before. My encouragement is for you to try to press through hearing the same stuff over again and ask yourself, is this true of me? Is this the way that I relate to God? So Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him, one, must believe that he exists, and two, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So without faith, without this deep level of trust, without reliance upon God, it's impossible to please him. So for us, as people who want to please God, that's an important statement. Without faith, we can't do it. Now I'm going to speak a, a, a bit about faith, but let me give you a fuller picture, James 2. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? The answer is yes, he was considered righteous. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's our verse. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. So let me give you a little something before we get going. I don't want you to think I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm going to talk about trust. I'm going to talk about reliance. I'm going to talk about confidence in. And so sometimes for us, all of that sounds like mental activity. It's all stuff that happens in here. Biblically, that is not true. Trust always demands expression. Faith always demands expression. That's why James can say faith and works go together. You can't have one without the other. If it's biblical faith, then it will be manifested in the way you live your life. You can't stand on a chair without other people knowing you're standing on a chair. That's a public act. You can't stand on a chair in your mind. I've told you all before this story about a guy named the Great Blonde in the 1800s. There was nothing to do. And so for entertainment, people would watch this guy tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. Big deal, he would do that. One day there was royalty from a no longer existing country in Europe, I think it was Prussia or something like that. The Prince of Prussia was there, and he was watching this display. And Blondin's doing his thing, cooking an egg on the middle of the tightrope and walking backwards and blindfolded, and he puts a wheelbarrow, and he takes it back and forth. He throws a sack of potatoes in and back and forth. And this prince says, I bet a per- you could put a person in there and take him back and forth. And Blondin says, then jump in. And the prince says, No. That's not faith then, biblically. I think you can put a person in there. Faith is getting in the wheelbarrow, biblically. That's why faith and works are so intimately connected in the Bible. Because faith demands expression. If you don't get in the wheelbarrow, then you don't have faith. You may have intellectual assent, you may have mental agreement, but you don't have faith. Faith is relational in the Bible. Belief is relational in the Bible, and so is trust. Those are relational concepts. 
And so, when we're talking about faith, what I, I, I want you keeping in mind that there's always an expression of that. That's what makes it biblical faith. It's getting in the wheelbarrow. That's what God is looking for from us. So there's this ledger you can see for Abraham. There's a ledger. And on the right side, the only way anything is a credit is if it's done faith. That's it. That's what goes on the right side. Things that are done as an expression of faith, as an expression of trust, as an expression of reliance on the Lord. Nothing else gets written in the right-hand side. That's what Genesis 15, 6 says. He believed God. So what God has got Abraham's name at the top, and under credit, he writes, believes God. And it's credited to him as righteousness. That's the standard that Abraham lives up to, that God is looking for from him and for us. And so that can play out in lots of different ways. Worship for us. If you worship done in faith, well, then it gets on the right-hand side. That's a credit to you because it's done from faith. So when we're in here and we're singing, whether you like the songs or not, or whether it's too loud or not, or somebody's clapping on or off beat, those things are circumstances. What matters to us is saying, do I believe that God is alive and he's personal and he's real and he wants to meet with me in these 20 minutes? And so I am going to worship accordingly. And do I also recognize that for whatever reason, he values what I bring to him. I don't know why. But he values thanks that I give to him. And he values praise that I give to him. And he values honor that I give to him. And so I'm going to do those things. Again, regardless of what's going on circumstantially, that's worshiping in faith. It's relying on or trusting in the fact that we know God is real and he's alive and he values worship. Reading the Bible, same thing. Do I believe? That God speaks to me through this book. That this is a revelation of his character, of what he wants from me, of how I'm supposed to interact with him and others. If so, then reading this gets credited in the account for me. If I read it in faith, trusting that God speaks to me through this. If I'm just reading it because somebody told me to, it doesn't count. It, It doesn't get put in the credit column. I may learn some things, which is fine, but it's not it's not forming my heart. And God doesn't see it. It's, he talks to, the, to the, um, his people in Isaiah, I think, 65. He says, your righteousness is filthy rags. All this religious activity that you're doing, I don't even see it. It's worthless because you're not doing it from a place of faith. You're not doing it as an expression of trusting in me. You're just going through the motions. You honor me with your lips and your hearts are far from me. So all of the good activity, the righteous activity, the spiritual activity that we can engage in If it's not done from a place of relying on, trusting in God, then it's not to our credit. It doesn't go on the right side of the column. And the only things that go on the right side of the column are things that are done in faith. Now, I can read the Bible and Brandon can read the Bible. And from two different places, he gets the credit and I don't. It's not the activity. It starts with our heart. Is it coming from a place of faith and trust? So what does that look like for us? Your relationship with God is founded on trusting him. You know that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's his picture of what's happening for us in salvation. We're saved by grace. The grace of God is his unmerited favor. It's the good things that he does for us that we don't deserve. If you like to look at it another way, it's his power at work on our behalf. I'm saved by the power of God, by this, by this good the good things that he's given to me that I don't deserve. It's two sides of the same coin. I'm saved by the power of God. It's not something that I've done. 
My faith is the instrumentation by grace through faith. So if you see grace as water in this glass, then faith is the straw. That's what gets the water from the cup into my mouth. And so grace, the water is available to everyone. God so loved the world. God doesn't delight when anyone perishes. God wants all men and women to come to a knowledge of the truth. He wants to see everybody coming into relationship with him. The water is available for everyone. The straw, that's my faith that makes that real in my life. It's the only way to get the water from the cup into my mouth. It's the only way to get grace from God to me. It's through faith. It's the means, it's the tool, it's the instrumentation. That's what we start with. You understand that. And so that begins with me by saying, I recognize I can't, I can't, I can't get out of my sin problem apart from you. I've sinned, I've fallen short of the glory of God, and I need you to forgive me. If I, even if I were to live perfect from this day onward, my perfection from this day onward doesn't make up for the first 39 years of imperfection. It doesn't make up for the sins I've already committed. I'm stuck. The Bible says I'm dead in my sins. And no good thing that I do can erase. It's not this scale where God's saying, that's, that's Islam. There's a scale. Have you done more good than bad? There's an angel on each shoulder recording. And at the end of time, Allah's going to look and he's going to say, what has more written in the book? Is there more written in the good book or the bad book? That's why they're willing to blow themselves up because it gets rid of the bad book. It's true. That's why they can motivate people to do that. Because it gets rid of the bad book. And they get taken straight to heaven. That's not Christianity. We don't have these two books. We don't have angels sitting on our shoulders recording what we've done. At the end of time, it's going to be... It's going to weigh out how much did I recycle and how many people did I help cross the street and did I cheat on my taxes. That doesn't matter. I'm dead and no amount of good things can make me come to life. That's why I have to say, God, the straw is faith. God, I need you to save me. I'm dead in my sins and you're the only one that can bring life because you're the Lord of life. That's how you begin as a Christian. If, you're, if you began with anything else, I don't care if you've been walking with God for 50 years, if your foundation is anything other than that, it's faulty. And by definition, anything built on a faulty foundation is going to fall. Go back and look at that. Are the spiritual disciplines that you practice, are they done from a, from a place that says, I'm doing this from a place of faith because I'm already in relationship with God, or am I doing this in order to get into a relationship with God. And the second thing, and this is probably more applicable to us, Galatians 3, you start with faith and you have to finish with it as well. Galatians 3, I'll read five or six, six of these verses. You foolish Galatians, what, what has bewitched you? Excuse me, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Were you... Did you enter into a relationship with God based on what you did or based on trusting Him? Are you so foolish after beginning by means of the Spirit, that's trust, are you now trying to finish by the means of the flesh, your effort? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Here's our verse. So also, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, how we began is also how we continue. We were saved by grace through faith, and we continue to live by grace 
through faith. There's an ongoing reliance upon the Lord. Jesus walked 3,100 miles in his life. And the command, the invitation to the disciples was follow me. The expectation is there's a continual re-upping with him. If they followed him for the first day or week or month or even year and then they quit, guess what? They get left behind. And the same thing is true for us. He's looking to us to say, are you trusting me? Are you in the wheelbarrow today? Are you in the wheelbarrow today? Are you in the wheelbarrow today? Honestly, it would be easier to have a checklist of behaviors to mark off. There's a, there's a, a dailiness to following him, to constantly saying, am I trusting God? Am I relying upon him? There's a dailiness to that that's much more significant than working through a religious checklist. It's Mother's Day. I read a quote this morning. An ounce of mother is better than a pound of clergy. The work that you do as moms, incredibly important. Penny said earlier, it's not your fundamental identity, though. And it can be difficult as a mom or as a dad to know what does it look like for me to trust God with my kids. When they're real young, you've got to do everything for them or literally they're going to die. But as they get older, there's got to be this sense of, God, how do I trust you with them? What does that look like? I've got to pull back a little bit so that they can grow a little bit. I have four. I'm constantly befuddled by what to do with them. And they're not bad kids. I have to regularly say, God, what does it look like for me to trust you with each one of these four? If you're not regularly praying that prayer, you're probably not trusting God with your kids. Same thing if you're married. God, what does it look like for me to trust you with my spouse? If you're not regularly praying that, you're probably not trusting him with your spouse. Some of you are entrepreneurs or you you lead companies and you work all the time, seven days a week from you. You're probably not trusting the Lord if you can't turn off the computer or if you can't let your phone, if you can't put it away while you're eating dinner. It's not that important. None of you are the president of the United States. Nobody's calling you saying that we're about to be attacked and you've got to issue the orders. It's not happening. And even if it was, you've got to find some time to rest. We're made for that. You can work for six days, but you can't work for seven. And for some of us, our businesses, we don't, we don't trust him with that. It's too practical for us to trust God with our business. We feel too much pressure. You've got employees and you're worried about making payroll or where the next sale is going to come from, or infrastructure, whatever that is. If you're not constantly saying, God, what does it look like for me to trust you with this business? Then you're probably not trusting him with your business. That means you're doing it in your flesh. It's no good. If you're tired all the time, then most likely you're not trusting God. Those places where you're tired, you're tired because you're running too hard. So you've got to make room for him. It may be relationally for some of you. God, what does it look like for me to trust you with this relationship? Some of us try to fix everything and some of us cut and run. Neither one of those is a good option. God is for restoration and reconciliation. What does it look like for me to trust you with this? Very practically, very practical, tangible, daily decisions. Abraham moves, practical. Abraham says to his nephew, you pick, right or left, practical. Abraham says to the king, I don't want your money tangible, practical. That's what faith looks like. Those were the things that God credited to him as righteousness. That was coming from this place of relying on God to fulfill his promise. And so are you doing that in your own life? Are you trusting him with your family? Are you trusting him with your business? Are you trusting him with your relationships? Whatever else is going on. We're going to take communion here. This is the way we do it at Stonebridge. 
you'll come forward a row at a time. We'll have some of our big 45 kids serving. This in the middle is gluten-free communion. Somebody will be holding that as well. Break off a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. We had some issues, honestly, at 9 with the bread. It was hard and crumbly. So if it's hard and crumbly, make sure you get a big enough chunk to dip it in the juice. You don't want to just have a little, just do that. So rip off a big chunk. It'll be better for you and everybody behind you. So um, this is as you're coming forward. Interesting. Abraham, here's this covenant ceremony. Cut up these animals, walk through them. I, think, I believe God and Abraham were already in a covenantal relationship, and that was kind of like the wedding ceremony. We're just making this official. We've already got this relationship, and I'm going to do this so you never forget it. Jesus says this for us. This is reminding us of a new covenant that we entered into on the night that he died. He said, anytime the bread is broken and you eat it and drink the wine or the juice, do it in remembrance of me. It's a reminder of this new covenant that we've entered into. And so as you're coming forward, I want you to do so as members participants in this new covenant of God. And he says, I'm going to do all this stuff for you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to heal you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to reconcile you. I'm going to give you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I'm going to empower you for life and for ministry. I'm going to set you free from everything that oppresses you. I came to destroy the works of the devil in your life and that you would have life and have it abundantly. I'm going to do all of that. And here's what I need from you to do. I need you to trust me. That's it. I need you to rely on me. That's it. I want you to have confidence that I am who I say I am and that I'm going to do the things that I say that I do. And I want your confidence to be so strong that you're willing to base your life on it. As you come forward this morning and take communion, I want you to recognize that's the covenant that you're a part of. He says, I'm going to do all of this, and all you have to do is trust me, and you can have access to all of it. Putting a straw in a glass of water. This simple as that. Let's pray and you guys can come forward for communion. God, I thank you for the men and women in this room. God, we thank you for this new covenant that you've brought us into. God, we thank you for the life that's possible simply by trusting in you. The offer is so good, it's hard to believe. You say you'll take our unrighteousness and you'll trade it for your righteousness. It's too good an offer. I was thinking even as we sang that song that you've overcome, You always win. Who always wins? You always win. And you you ask us to be on your team, which means we always win. Even when we appear to lose, we win. The worst thing that happens is we die and then we're with you. It's an amazing offer. And God, I pray for any today who haven't said yes, who who are trusting in themselves or something else instead of trusting in you. I pray that they would hear you say to them in a way that they would understand. Come on. Come on. Get on my team. Be a part of my family. Quit trying. Quit striving. Quit washing yourself. Quit ignoring me. You can't clean yourself up enough. Just come on. Just say help. God, I pray for those of us who've said yes to you, and we, but we continue to wrestle, wrestle with trusting you on an ongoing basis. That's probably all of us. I pray, God, that you would convict us. So I just want you to be in your mind. Just ask the Lord, God, are there places where I'm not trusting you? I'm not relying upon you right now. If it was one thing or five things that God brought to your mind, I just want you to repent. That looks like this. 
God, I confess that in that area, name it, I've quit trusting you. I'm trying to manage it or control it or drive it or I'm ignoring it, but I'm not trusting you. And so I repent of that. I thank you for forgiving me. And God, I pray you'd show me what it looks like moving forward to trust you with that area of my life. And God, I need you to help me daily. My tendency is to grab those things back. They're important to me. And it's hard for me to constantly rely on you in those areas, especially when I don't see evidence of your activity. So you're going to have to help me daily trust you. So show me what the first step is. Amen. You guys can come forward. Bo will dismiss us after this song. We'll have ministry teams in the corner. We'll pray with you about anything that you have going on. But particularly if God put something in your, brought something in your mind in an area where you're not trusting him, we would love to pray with you about that. Sometimes it's great to say that out loud. It can kind of cement um, the work that God's doing in your heart. So you guys can stand and Bo will dismiss us uh, when we're done.